And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing all right. Uh, If folks are unaware, there have been um, quite a few wildfires across Alberta. Uh, Where we live, we are safe from fires, but not the smoke. So if I sound raspy voiced or clogged sinuses or anything like that, it's because of my asthma and this oppressive smoke. But otherwise, I'm doing all right. Ben, how are you? Yeah. Um, if I sound kind of tired, same reasons. I don't know. It kind of sucks when it's really hot and you have to keep all your windows closed because outside it looks like, you know. Vulcan. Right. <laughs> animated series gotham city absolutely uh it's yeah like when the air quality index is telling you that the current air quality is like above what the chart can say between one to ten it's like it's 10 plus uh that that's bad (laughs) yeah yeah uh you don't want outside looking like the las vegas scenes in blade runner 2049 anyways i'm tired Hi, tired. I'm Sarah. Nice to meet you. I'm now more tired. <laughs> you walked into that one. Hmm. Well, how about you tell us what we are watching tonight? Tonight, Sarah, we are watching a film called The Hypnotic Eye from 1960, which I had never heard of before this show, and I kind of wish that was still the case. Oh, no. It's just this movie connected to so many potential wikipedia rabbit holes so many like research tangents um that brought up really interesting things but it's like are they relevant to talking about this movie but ultimately the movie itself doesn't seem interesting enough on its own to talk about and not talk about these weird things it connects with uh so like without these weird things the context setting would be five minutes but with them, it's five hours. Right. Like, uh. so I, I, tr- I tried really hard in creating this episode and doing my research to find some kind of middle ground. So that's kind of me saying, listeners, if, if any of this sounds really interesting, like, go do your own reading. Like, go do some homework. You know what I mean? Like, do some extra credit work. Come back. <laughs> let <laughs> we'll us know. You. That's right. Well, based on the research that I did... I am glad we are covering this movie because it is bringing up two things we've talked about before, regression theory, hypnotism Mm -hmm. stuff, and beatniks. Yes. Um, So I guess I need to start with the, you know, primary creative driver behind Mm. this movie, um, which is a guy named William Woodfield. So William Woodfield was an American magazine photographer specializing in coverage of movies and celebrities. He took stills and publicity shots. He was born in San Francisco in 1928, and he was a child prodigy magician. Amazing. And at age 18, he started writing a column about stage magic in... um, 
Jenny Magazine or Genie Magazine, uh, which was a trade magazine for magicians. Working with the magazine got Woodfield interested in like magazine production, which got him interested in photography. And by 1957, he was an in-demand celebrity portrait photographer for the likes of Natalie Wood, Elizabeth Taylor, Peter Ustinov, and Marilyn Monroe. Uh, he actually did the famous like poolside photo shoot for Marilyn Monroe that was done as publicity for her film, Something's Gotta Give, which ended up never being finished or coming out. In late 1959, early 1960, uh, he was working as a stills photographer on Spartacus. Um, he actually worked while Anthony Mann was directing Spartacus, which was only for like the first, I think, five days, six days of the shoot when uh, Kirk Douglas then fired him and had him replaced with Stanley Kubrick. Um, but during those five days, Woodfield was driving out to like the desert where they were shooting Spartacus and driving back to LA every day. And while driving back to LA after a day on set, Woodfield found himself getting entranced by the white lines on the highway, a phenomenon known as highway hypnosis or white line fever. <laughs> this is why when I was taught to drive on Alberta highways, it was like drilled into me that, you know, look off into the distance, look like through your passenger side window, like every few minutes just to kind of get your eyes off the road. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this experience of highway hypnosis gave him an idea for a movie where the only image would be a hypnotic white line and a voiceover would lull the audience into an hypnotic state. Okay. And basically at a certain point, the voice would conduct a test to see if you were hypnotized or not. If you weren't hypnotized. You were instructed to leave the theater and go get your money back. And if you were hypnotized, you would stay in your chairs. And then the hypnotized audience would be told a story, like just by the voiceover. And then at the end of the film, they would be told that they had just seen the greatest movie ever made as if the story they were told, they had actually seen it. And they would be left with the post-hypnotic suggestion, tell all their friends about it. <laughs> Great for marketing. Yeah. So the idea here was to basically not make a movie. Yeah. And then trick people's imaginations into thinking they had seen the best movie they'd ever seen and then making those people go out and do the publicity for them. Yeah. Yeah. So Woodfield took this idea to his agent, Charlie Block, who sold it to allied artists. It's sold. <laughs> there was just one problem. Allied artists wanted a real movie to go with the hypnosis, not just a white line. Yeah, they saw it as like a William Castle marketing trick. Yeah, but they weren't willing to actually put out the experiment of the white line <laughs> hypnotic movie. Yeah. So they gave Woodfield an advance of $35,000 and he and his wife wrote the script. Oh my goodness. Allied artists brought in George Blair to direct, an experienced director of B-movies for 16 years. The Hypnotic Eye would be his final feature film before he permanently transitioned to TV work. Woodfield's take on hypnotists was that they were all perverts who got into the business on the promise of being able to take over women. He always noticed when he went to go like see 
demonstrations of hypnosis that the hypnotist always had like a bunch of pretty girls with him who he would then, you know, instantly put under and make them do whatever he wanted. So his take on why you became a hypnotist was like, you were some kind of pervert basically, um, who wanted to like take agency away from women to be skeezy. Um, so he wrote the screenplay on that basis as well as the idea that there should be some new shock in every scene to hold the audience's attention. Get a very low opinion of the resulting script, but it gave him a foot in the door to become a television writer later on. He wrote for a number of TV series. Most notably, he was considered to be one of the best writers on the original Mission Impossible television series. Hmm, interesting. He was sort of instrumental in changing the kinds of stories that Mission Impossible did, where a lot of the early missions were like physical. It was like break into a vault or find this secret information or whatever. And Woodfield introduced the idea of missions that were more like con jobs, Mm. like adopt these disguises and con the target into giving us the information you want kind of thing. And now it's gone full circle into what kind of action pushing the limits kind of thing can Tom Cruise do? Right. So Woodfield wanted Pedro Armanderas uh, for the lead role here. Um, You might know him as, well, there's a bunch of different things. Probably the easiest one to point to would be he's James Bond's contact in Istanbul in From Russia With Love. Okay. But Allied Artists cast Jacques Bergerac a French law student who had become an actor in 1953 when a vacationing Ginger Rogers met him, married him, and then brought him back to Hollywood and started getting him jobs. What a whirlwind romance. Yes, because the two then divorced in 1957, four years later, but Verdrack kept it going as an actor until 1969 when he retired to become head of Revlon's Paris office. Wild. He passed away at age 87 in 2014. The film's female lead is played by Allison Hayes, the bombshell actress who we've seen in The Undead, Zombies of Moratau, and The Unearthly, but is best known as the title character in Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. This is the last we're going to be seeing of Hayes, who later suffered severe health problems due to lead poisoning from a calcium supplement that she had been taking. She died of leukemia at age 46 in 1977, and shortly thereafter, the FDA made a number of new regulations regarding nutritional supplements in the U.S. because of her case. A number of cameo roles in the movie were cast purely as publicity stunts. Like, Allied Artists just loaded this up with gimmicks, basically, Um, a couple of examples include, there's like a scene at like a beatnik club or something where we see, um, Eric, Big Daddy Nord and Lawrence Lipton. And I understand that you have some information about these people. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Daddy-o. You dig? Let me tell you about Lawrence Lipton. Okay. Uh, is he the Lipton tea guy? No, I was honestly, I was really disappointed. (laughs) He nor his son have nothing to do mm-hmm. with Lipton tea. Lawrence Lipton cameos as king of the beatniks. So you might wonder, like, why Lawrence Lipton? Who is this guy? What is he doing here? 
Well, Lawrence Lipton is an author, um, a poet, a novelist. He was born in 1898 in Poland and immigrated to the U.S. when he was five years old with his family, first to Chicago and then settling into L.A. later in life. A Jewish American, his first publication was an illustration of the Haggadah, which is um, a Jewish text, and he rubbed elbows with Chicago writers. He would write for The Atlantic as a journalist, and then he would pivot to fiction and poetry. In L.A., uh, he became a central beat figure, though he's a bit older than the typical beatnik in your mm. mind. He was born in 1898, so he's probably at least 10 years older than the average beatnik. His book, The Holy Barbarians, was published in 1959 and is notable because it's the first piece of nonfiction about the beatniks. Um, I saw descriptions of it as like, this is a sociological study, and it's not rigorous in that way at all. If anything, it's almost like a self-telling about what beatnik culture is and what they stand for, why they do what they do. Um, but it's also coming from a beatnik himself. As I said, it kind of reads like a diary. It feels very transparent in describing the scene, the conversations, etc. It almost reads like fiction because of the way it's told. Um, and specifically, uh, The Holy Barbarians focuses on the beatniks in Venice, California. I'm surprised you don't know who this person is because uh, his son, James Lipton, is the or was the host of Inside the Actors Studio, which I know you and your family watched a lot of. Yeah, I, I, I know the name James Lipton for sure. Yeah, so this yeah. is his dad. Gotcha. So the reason why I think he kind of came to mind is because of, you know, this book, The Holy Barbarians, and I believe this movie is set in or around Venice, and he's kind of like, you know, you think Venice, California, and beatniks, this guy's face comes to mind. Gotcha. Now, the other guy you mentioned, Eric Big Daddy Nord, was actually called King of the Beatniks. Oh, okay. Which... Is confusing. It's confusing and bothers me, but, right. you know, whatever. He was born in 1919 in Germany. Uh, his mom was American. His dad was a German pastor, and so they would frequently travel to the U.S. In 1938, Germany was not the best place to be, so he immigrated to the U.S., um, specifically to L.A., to start acting. The reason he's called Big Daddy is because he is six foot seven, Ben. Gotcha. Tall man. Tall man. That's like one, one and three quarters of me. Right. That's ridiculous. So he entered the beatnik scene kind of as a poet, but mostly because he would be working at coffee houses, um, kind of getting his foot in the door at um, the self-proclaimed gateway to beatnik land cafe called coexistence bagel shop gotcha wanting to get into the cafe owning business himself he rented a basement and that kind of hangout place uh became known as the hungry eye and i is in um the letter not the the organ gotcha um it became known for as a great place for stand-up comedy for poet readings makeshift theater productions, dancing, all of that. 
when LA was like, you know what, we should crack down on drugs, uh, the police raided the Hungry Eye and would arrest Big Daddy, not for any like drug reason, but because he was hosting public dancing without a license. <laughs> okay. So keep in mind, he has a criminal record now. Mm-hmm. Later on. I mean, isn't that just better cred if you're a beatnik? Possibly. Hmm. Later on, Big Daddy was a key suspect when two high school girls went missing after a play of a performance at one of his clubs. Reportedly, he and another guy took the girls on a drive post-performance. I guess it was um, this like procession of beatnik cars, and so they took the girls with them, um, and then the girls disappeared. Uh, he turned himself in because he's like, I don't know what happened to them. And like, my name has come up in the papers, particularly because I have this arrest record. And I want you guys to know I have nothing to do with it. My interest in the girls was purely as like a father figure. Mm. They would go to trial in 1958. And uh, the judge was like, there's no real evidence here, but I'm going to give you a $300 fine and three years probation. Mm. $300 would be about $3,000 today. So he's well-known in L.A. He, his face has come up. But also he's the host of many of the cafes where the beatniks are going. And I think the fact that he's, like, hosting and, like, the owner of these establishments is why he's known as King of the Beatniks. But I don't think that's necessarily why he's in this movie. Mm. I think the reason why he's in this movie is because uh, in 1959 he opened a cafe called The Gas House in Venice. And it was a um, cafe. It was a hub of the beatniks. And it's also the setting for the beatniks in the hypnotic eye. Gotcha. So I think it was kind of like a let us shoot here and you can be in the movie. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Big Daddy would have many future cafes and establishments that would be cafes as well as uh, cafe and art gallery, cafe and concert location. Some of the people who performed at some of his establishments include Janis Joplin and the Grateful Dead in uh, about the mid-1960s. And uh, he would continue that kind of business into the 70s where his establishments became like meeting places for the underground comics crew. Ah, sure. So this is who Big Daddy is. Gotcha. Another figure who has a cameo in this film is Fred DeMara, uh, who was a professional imposter um he has was a, he though <laughs> he has a cameo role in this movie as a hospital doctor so he's not like playing himself the way that yeah Nord he just plays Lipton one is. on tv i get it right <laughs> um so he's in this movie because a movie about his life starring tony curtis was being made at the time so getting damara into the movie gave the movie more publicity fred damara's life would be a whole other podcast. Um, he's like the catch me if you can guy, but okay. not um, like a different guy doing sort of the same thing, right? The movie about his life that came out in 1961 is called the great imposter. And Tony Curtis would later say that that was his favorite role was okay. playing Fred DeMara. Fred DeMara impersonated a lot of different professions. Like the list would be too long to even go into but most notably uh he impersonated a navy surgeon during the korean war to pad out the screenplay 
of this movie that, you know, he had originally envisioned as just being a voice over a white line. Uh, Woodfield added audience participation scenes, um, kind of, you know, coming from those William Castle gimmicks of the day where the hypnotist uh, character in the film demonstrates how hypnosis works, like in a standard hypnosis demonstration, and then tries to hypnotize the audience of the movie as if they were the audience at the demonstration. Um, so allied artists advertised this element of the film as saying the movie had been filmed in hypno magic. Um, okay. But it was not a new filming technique. It was just basically the audience was given a balloon with an eye on it and then told what to do with that balloon while supposedly under hypnosis during the movie. And so to like consult on this and make sure they got the hypnosis right. Um, the movie brought on Gil Boyne as a hypnosis consultant. Ben, what is your honest opinion of hypnosis? I think hypnosis is a little bit placebo effect. So okay. I, I don't think it's like real, but I think that it can work if you are someone who thinks it's real which is sort of interesting because basically what I'm saying is that the power of suggestion will be really like effective on you if you are a suggestible person. What about hypnotherapy? I don't think hypnotherapy makes sense to me. I, I'm not saying that it's not effective because things can be effective for different people for all kinds of different reasons, like the placebo effect. But my opinion on hypnotherapy is that like, I think you're going to make better breakthroughs with your patients if they are conscious and can remember the things that they've talked to you about. Great. Put a pin in those. So Gilboyne was born Mark Thomas Gilboyne. Okay. One word, last name, in 1924. And I suspect he started going by Gilboyne when he was in the Navy during World War II. Um, and the reason I think that is because people would be like, hey, Gilboyne, and sure. then just shortening it to Gil or Boyne. And so I feel like he probably just like went with it. After the war, he went to a psychoanalyst program along with like other people. Like it wasn't just like a yeah. single him out. And he found it very ineffective and very, very frustrating. Hmm. Now, he had always been kind of like, interested in hypnosis and um you know sleight of hand kind of things and he fell into being a stage hypnotist and he was like hmm i think by using hypnotism we could really enhance therapy methods see this is a big part of like why i'm not a big believer in hypnotism is because like other kinds of medical practice whether it's like surgery or counseling or whatever don't also have a version of them that's done for like tricks at vaudeville shows yes yes so yeah he's like these doctors don't know anything Hypnoti hypnotism is the way to go so he goes all in into studying all he can about hypnosis he would eventually uh, apprentice under and then work with a guy who is like the leading person in hypnosis ormond mcgill he's known as the dean of american hypnotists and together they would work on a, a book in the 70s called professional stage hypnotism 
So even in like the 70s, there's still like stage hypnotism, Mm -hmm. one foot, hypnotherapy, the other foot. Yeah. You want to be careful, though, and not refer to your patients as Marks. Absolutely. Unless that's their name. Right. And in particular, Gil Boyne was very influenced by things like regression therapy, which we've talked about in the context of Bridie Murphy stuff, and gestalt therapy, which is kind of related to cognitive behavioral therapy um, because it's about uh, enhancing your personal awareness, your freedoms, your self-direction. You have the power to make the change right? once you understand the context around you. So I will say CBT is something I believe in. It's something I've been through and that was very effective with me. Regression therapy is something that in previous episodes of this show we have shown was based on like a faulty premise because the original Bridie Murphy thing was all bullshit. Yes. Anyways. So with regression and gestalt therapy combined, it's like understand your past lives to provide context for who and where you are now. Right. And let's talk about moving forward. Right. Which is also very similar to Scientology. Just so you understand like where the Venn overlap on all of these con men Absolutely. Is. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you, Ben. Sure. Um, we can now no longer step foot in LA for <laughs> saying these things. Huh. By the time that this movie is being made, 1959-1960, Gil Boyne's big accolades are ahead of him. Uh, He would found the Hypnotism Training Institute in 1976, the year before that book about Mm. stage hypnotism. Mm -hmm. He would say that, like, opening this institute is very important so that the layperson can understand how to best use hypnotherapy. At no point in my research was I able to determine what kind of psychology or counseling related degrees mr gilboyne had Mm. his big book would be in 1989 called transforming therapy he he would do a ton of stuff in hypnotherapy after this including founding a publishing house that would exclusively publish these things but like that's all ahead of him including working with Hollywood stars like Sylvester Stallone and Dolly Parton. He would also work with Olympic athletes and the American Green Berets. So at this point, I think it's like, oh, hey, you are experienced with stage hypnotism. You're coming with us Mm -hmm. uh, into this movie for being a consultant. Right. But that interest in hypnotherapy is there for him. So I think he would be... Excited to work on this movie. Sure. William Woodfield, this photographer who decided to make a movie where you were going to hypnotize the audience into thinking it was a good movie, like just comes off as like a step removed from a con man. Yeah. Um, the, the problem is, is that allied artists are the ones who got the last laugh and ended up conning him into actually having to make the movie. Right. But um, the hypnotic eye was shot in 12 days for $365,000. And apparently like no one on set really took things particularly seriously. They ended up doing like a lot of different kinds of shots that like you weren't supposed to do in movies because Woodfield as a photographer thought they would be cool and like told the cinematographer to do them. So they were just kind of dicking around. I mean, that's how Citizen Kane got made. Sure. The film (laughs) premiered on February 27th, 1960. And... At the premiere, like at the theater it premiered at, what they did was they would have the movie play all day. And between shows, 
you know, when they were re-spooling up the projector or whatever, Gil Boyne would do stage shows at the theater in between. Yeah, that tracks. So at the time, Woodfield felt that the movie was losing publicity uh, and not doing as well as it should because of, like in his opinion, Carol Chessman, who was being considered for an eighth stay of execution after having been on death row since 1948. That has nothing to do with this movie. So Carol Chessman, like, was fairly notable. A movie had been made about his life uh, under a different name in 1955. He was like, I think at the time, one of the longest, like, people to be on death row. He had been convicted in 1948 of 17 counts of robbery, kidnapping, and rape. There was a lot of stuff, a lot of ins and outs in this case. This is not a true crime podcast, but basically the main issue that kept causing all these stays of execution was that he was getting executed for kidnapping, which normally isn't a capital crime, but under a very specific interpretation of a California law, kidnapping that causes bodily harm could be a capital crime. But, like, it still wasn't a lethal kidnapping. And so there was just, like, a lot of controversy over, like, should we be executing this guy? So Woodfield's like, okay, whether this guy is going to get an eighth stay or not is in the news a lot. And it's taking headlines away from the hypnotic eye. So Woodfield contacts Chessman's lawyer. And he's like, hey, I have an idea. I've got Gil Boyne here, this hypnotist. How about we have him come over and hypnotize Chessman the day of the execution? And that way he'll get to win his eighth stay of execution on the grounds that you can't execute a man who's not in his right mind. And then you can say, oh, I had no idea that he got hypnotized by this guy. Who is this guy? And we'll be like, oh, it's the hypnotist from the hypnotic eye, this movie we're showing. And everybody wins. Your guy gets the stay of execution. We get more publicity for the movie. And Chessman's lawyer was like, yeah, man, I guess it can't hurt. Terrible lawyer. <laughs> Chessman's lawyer also was like, oh, he definitely did it, by the way. This is what he told Woodfield. Like, Woodfield was like, did he do it? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. The guy's a jerk. So this ended up not happening because... Thank God. Chessman ended up getting the eighth stay of execution anyway without needing the stunt because of some political stuff going on at the time. But this ended up leading to Woodfield becoming like fascinated by Chessman's case. Like he got involved now. He, he like went to meet with Chessman and was like, Hey, like what's the deal? Are you guilty? What's up? And Chessman's oh like, God. no, I'm absolutely not guilty. If you want, you can take a look at all the case files and all of the like evidence and all of the testimony and like read it and like, tell me if, you think I'm guilty or not. And Woodfield like examined all this evidence and listened to Chessman's story and became convinced that Chessman was actually innocent and then convinced Chessman's lawyer that Chessman was actually innocent. And he it took all this work that he did examining the case to a justice on the California Supreme Court and talked this guy into giving Chessman a ninth stay of execution. And the judges like got his secretary, like call the prison. We're going to have the execution delayed for a ninth time. But the secretary misdialed. Uh, the phone call went to a different department at the prison who then redirected the call to the execution chamber, who then got the call while Chessman was being executed. Oh my God. 
Ben. And so Chessman was executed and Woodfield ended up taking all of this and writing a book on the matter, which he called The Ninth Life, uh, which ended up becoming the work that he was actually most proud of at the end of the day, uh, even with all these other screenplays on TV shows that he did later and all of his famous photography work and everything else. Even over this movie? Oh, he thinks this movie's a piece of trash. Yeah. Oh my God. This, I, that is really upsetting to me. <laughs> um, Cause I don't believe in the death penalty. So, uh, anyways. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, Woodfield thinks this movie's terrible. Funny enough, the national film review magazine in naming the best films of 1960 included this film on the list. And Woodfield was like, Why? you can't, you, you cannot put the hypnotic eye on the same list as Spartacus. This is he was nonsense. like, Why though? Yeah. So maybe this movie's good, actually. <laughs> if it's up there with Spartacus as one of the best movies of 1960. Aye, aye, aye. Uh, all right. Well, let, let's find out. How are we watching this? Uh, you can get the hypnotic eye on DVD from the Warner archive collection, and it is available online to rent through iTunes. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss the hypnotic eye from 1960 directed by George Blair. See you on the other side, everybody. Hello and welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Hypnotic Eye from 1960, directed by George Blair. Ben, first thoughts? It's not a horror movie. It's not a good movie. Yes, that's true too. This was really interesting because uh, normally with some of these movies, it's been like, well, that's not a horror movie. It is a monster movie though. And this, I don't know what this is, a gimmick movie? It's, so it's a pot boiler. Like it's a, it's kind of like a, it's like a thriller. Like it's the kind of story you could maybe see on like TV. Like, like if you had like a cop show that was about the adventures of Sergeant Kennedy and Dr. Hecht and like them, you know, they solve like most of the time it's like regular crime, but like. For one episode, they like the writers were running out of ideas and they were like, what if we did something really wacky? Like when CSI like arrests like a video game criminal or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> like that's that's to me like what this was the most like. Like this was a very dragged out episode of television with like a few things in it that you couldn't put on TV. Sure. Yeah, I did. This is looking way ahead, mm. but I did come up with a range if we did decide this was a horror movie because I was so torn because I th like we'll get into the discussion let's get into the discussion later sure let me tell everyone what happens in the movie okay uh namely that we have a very ineffectual detective that the movie wants you to think is very effectual um he is not 
So the film opens with a woman kind of washing her hair, whatever, and then she sets it on fire at the stove, seemingly accidentally, but also kind of on purpose. It turns out this is the 11th woman uh, to be a victim of self-mutilation. This is like a strong opening. I do want to say like the movie starts strong. Yeah. Now, don't worry, because Detective Dave Kennedy is on the case. Uh, He is stumped. There's a reason why it's been 11 victims. Sure. He's not a very good detective. No. Uh, but, and he's like, man, what what's going on in these women's minds? Because one, in her mind's eye, she thought that this metal fan was, they call it a vibrator, but what they mean is like a facial massage machine. Or do they mean a vibrator? They call it a vibrator. Yeah. They do call it a vibrator. I'm just saying that like most vibrators of this period were, you know, sold as like a foot massage machine or whatever, right? Well, this woman puts her face on it. Yeah. Turns out it's actually the metal fan, so it gets chopped up. Uh, There's another case of a woman drinking lye, so she can no longer speak. Yeah, she thought it was coffee. Yeah. So he's like, what is going on in these women's minds when they're doing this? He's completely stumped. And he goes to see his friend, Dr. Philip Hecht, who is a police psychiatrist. And he basically is like, you know, mulling the case over with this guy. And then he also shares that like, yeah, my girlfriend, Marsha, has been like feeling kind of neglected as I've been working this case. I'm going to take her and her friend Dodie out to see this new hypnotist in town called uh, the Amazing Desmond. Uh, And Dr. Hecht, Phil, as I will call him, Phil is like, oh man, those stage hypnotists giving us real hypnotists a bad name because like hypnotism is like a valid form of therapy but they just use it for cheap tricks and they are dangerous dave thinks it's all baloney but he takes marcia and Dodie to see desmond anyways uh desmond he is french so he's very you know heavy on the french accent as he is giving these demonstrations The first few demonstrations are like these men on stage who, you know, bark like a dog or think it's really hot or something. And Dave's like, oh, these are stooges. Like they were plants in the audience. Next, for his final demonstration, Desmond calls up for uh, looking for three young ladies. Now, his assistant comes out at this point and kind of nods at which one Desmond should choose. And Dodie happens to be one of the women. Um, And in fact, uh, she's brought up along with two other women who um, they basically do light as a feather, stiff as a board. Yep. Um, But Dodie gets hypnotized and you see that he's like whispering something in her ear as she's hypnotized and floating. After the show, Dave is like, oh, it's all baloney. You were just like playing along, weren't you, Dodie? Like, A, (laughs) she was floating. How is she playing along? Anyways, (laughs) B... Dave is like hounding her, but so is Marsha being like, no, you were really hypnotized, weren't you? And Dodie is clearly like a little overwhelmed. Um, and she kind of gives them the slip. She's like, yeah, I'm going to go home. She goes to go into a taxi. And then as soon as Dave and Marsha are out of sight, she then decides not to go into the taxi and goes back into Desmond's dressing room. Next, we see Dodie at home. She's washing her face with acid. And she has become the 12th self-mutilation victim. And Dave is stumped. 
Dodie doesn't remember anything. She said she was alone. She was like home washing her face, getting ready for bed. She doesn't know where the acid came from. She has no idea what was going on. Marsha, however, is like, well, what if she was hypnotized? And Dave's like, well, that's baloney because hypnotism isn't real. So that can't be the case. And she's like, yeah, but she didn't feel any pain. And we've established in the context of this movie that hypnotism is an anesthetic. Uh, I don't believe it actually is, but in any case. And uh, we saw she was hypnotized earlier. And Dave's like, no, because she was just playing along. That can't be a lead at all. And Marsha's like, well, I'm going to go back to the show and see for myself. And he drops her off to go to the show. This time, Marsha gets picked, and she fights against the hypnotism. Um, so she's kind of like aware of what's going on, and she knows that Desmond has asked her to come back to his dressing room at midnight. Now, she tells this to Dave and Phil, who, by the way, is like, Phil is the most interesting man in the world in this movie. Yeah, every time they go to his apartment, like he has this like swanky apartment he has this like big fluffy cat he has like that's actually a dog ben oh he has a big fluffy dog he's got uh, a piano he sits around in like kimonos like with his like hairy chest and medallions like who is this guy uh the world's most eligible bachelor yeah but he only has eyes for science for science prime science (laughs) yeah so she tells dave and Phil about this and Dave's like well I don't like this my girl running around with this hypnotist and Phil is like but they think she's hypnotized she she wouldn't be aware of what she's doing and Marsha's like that's right and I'm gonna go and so they come up with a plan that Dave and Phil will follow along while Marsha goes in uh Marsha heads into the dressing room and then gets re-hypnotized and Desmond takes um Desmond is a sleaze bag. Yeah. But he doesn't just straight up assault her. He's like, hey, let's go for dinner. Where do you live? Let's go out on a night on the town. It's 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 a little better than just straight up okay. welcoming her back into his dressing room and then going to town, right? It's hey, let's let's wine and dine you. <laughs> I'm still going to make out with you where consent is a big, big big missing piece of the puzzle here uh he's a sleazebag absolutely okay 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 the look on ben's face okay okay so i get where you're coming from but i actually think this is worse i'm just trying to show that i think with this perspective desmond doesn't see himself as a bad guy yeah 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 and i think that's why it's worse so like Okay, from a perspective of watching the movie, yes, it is much more pleasant, I suppose, to watch him hypnotize a girl into going on a date with him, like the girlfriend experience, rather than just like hypnotizing her into immediately having sex with him. It's non-consensual either way. Yes. Um, But in terms of like ranking Desmond on the sleazebag scale, and, and maybe this is just like my point of view, but like... It's like you either way you are mind controlling this woman into having sex with you. Like that's the end goal here. Yes. The fact that he wants to do the girlfriend experience does give a performative element to it. It's like being like, Hey everyone, look who I have on my arm. Like it's weirder to me. That's weirder because like 
you're you, also you, because he knows what's going to happen to her right which so we like, haven't gotten to yet yes. and so but you know not to get there not to get ahead of ourselves i just want to like lodge that i think that mind controlling a woman to have sex with you is sort of at least like straight into the point it's like oh I, I get like i get what you're doing yeah. here like it's bad but like cool like you have some like mind controlling her to go on a date with you and go dancing and go to a restaurant and spend money to like get nice food and like wine and dine her while she's still under hypnosis and then have sex with you is almost like weirdly self-delusional to me where yeah, it's like it feels like no you're not actually hypnotized you're having a great time right it, like it's it's really weirdly like as if like thou doth protest too much like as if he's trying to convince himself he's not a sleaze bag because no see i took her on a nice date first like, absolutely like no, I can, he's a sleaze bag either way but one of these is a little bit worse than the other yeah it's just i'm i'm on the i think one of them makes him easier to watch in a movie and the other makes him like kind of worse in the sense that like if you're gonna be a bad guy like at least know you're a bad guy <laughs> like don't try to dress it up anyway sorry so yeah okay so they they meet at midnight mm -hmm. oh so this is this is over 30 year old Sarah saying something. Uh, <laughs> they meet at midnight. They go to dinner. They go to the beatnik club. Right. They keep going out, dance and whatever. And I'm like, what time are you coming home? You've been up for a really long time. You've had a very emotional day because your yeah, best friend self mutilated herself last night. Yeah. She's like, hypnotized. It's fine. No, but it's just like, how, how do they have the energy? I guess at the beatnik club, they have some coffee. Yeah. Also, um, Wikipedia is incorrect. It lists Lawrence Lipton as king of the beatniks. The actual casting list in this movie is Big Daddy is king of the beatniks. Right, which is what he was called. Yes, exactly. But Wikipedia is wrong. I just wanted to call out Wikipedia for sure. a quick moment. Sure. Um, Lipton does give a, uh, a little bit of a... A poem, a beat poem. It's bad. It's bad. So I hope he didn't write it. Yeah. Um, but he sure did perform it poorly in any case. <laughs> so they're out on the town. They go back to her place. Waiting at her place is the assistant, Justine. And this is Allison Hayes. Yes. So Justine is there and um, Desmond is like not surprised that she's there. It's kind of part of the plan. Um, so he stops making out for a minute and kind of hands Marsha, still hypnotized, over to Justine and asks, like, how many more? And Justine says, as long as there are beautiful faces like this one. Uh, and then she <laughs> takes Marsha to go get ready for bed by, like, suggesting that she goes into the scalding hot shower. So Marsha is about to become the 13th self-mutilation victim. And then Dave knocks on the door. Because remember, Dave and Phil have been following this whole time. And Dave has been a real dick about it. Dave is so stupid. Can I, do you, should I wait to get into how stupid Dave is? Or do you want me to get into it now? Um, we can wait till the discussion. Okay. But I am going to point out that, yeah, he's been with Phil following this whole way. Being like, I can't believe she's hanging off him. And Phil is like, well, if she's hypnotized, she won't know what she's doing. Yeah, it's like she's... She's also acting. She's yeah. trying to, like, 
lead this guy into confessing or something. Yeah, we're doing like an undercover sting here, guy. Like either she's hypnotized or she's pretending. But also they then follow her to her place. They're outside in the car. She and Desmond are making out inside. And just as like, you know, the key part in your investigation, the what happens to them right before they mutilate themselves part, the thing that you don't know that you need to find out right as that's going to happen. Dave's like, I think we've seen enough. Let's just leave. And it's like Phil who has to be like, um, no, like this is the part where she's going to mutilate herself. Maybe you should go in and check on her. Yeah. He's <sighs> like, also, also they're following because they aren't sure if Desmond is a murderer. Yeah. 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 Like let's that's just the whole point. Girlfriend here. That's the whole point. But he's like, I can't watch any more of my girlfriend making out with this guy who we're assuming is the murderer who like she is luring into like the state. Like, yeah, the worst oh, guy. Oh my God. The worst, worst guy. detective. So yes, at Phil's suggestion, Dave goes and knocks on the door just in time and interrupts this whole self-mutilation. Uh, Justine explains her presence as, yeah, I'm an old roommate of Marsha. And Marsha is in her hypnotized state is like, yeah, Justine's an old roommate. And Dave's like, but you never went to school. <laughs> Boarding school. Uh, and with that, Justine like runs down the fire escape. And the next morning, Dave's like, yeah. It was really strange. I don't know what was going on. <laughs> yes. Uh, Marsha also has been continuing to act strange because she's still hypnotized. And it's Phil who, again, is telling Dave, like, well, what are you going to do next? Like, it's pretty clear that, like, Justine's involved in some sort of way. Also, also, Dave was at the show. Mm -hmm. You should fucking recognize Justine yeah, as, as the, the assistant. Yeah. Like this is like me opening the door <laughs> and like, you know, seven of nine is on the other side of the door and me being like, who are you? <laughs> I don't recognize you. Are you some sort of like politician's wife or something? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. So Dave's like, yeah, I think I'm going to go talk to the 11 other victims and see if they've ever been hypnotized, if they have ever seen Desmond's show, and if they know someone named Justine. All of them say no, which is weird because he knows that Dodie yeah. was at the show. And she's like, no, I've never been hypnotized. I don't know who Desmond is. Who's Justine? Dave's like, I don't understand. How could they all say no? And Phil has to be like, because they were hypnotized not to remember. Like Dave has to be reminded <laughs> that hypnotism exists every like five minutes in this movie. Yeah. Also, the fact that like it took until now for Dave to think, what if I interviewed all the victims to see if they had something in common? Anyway. And I mean, someone might be like, well, they don't remember. But it's not like someone didn't tell a friend that they were going to go see Desmond. They might have gone with someone else. So one of them is married with children. So the husband would presumably know that she would have gone to see the show. Yeah. Like, honestly, like, when... Marsha first brings up her theory before we even do the sting operation. Like I'm sitting there being like, cool, interview all the victims to see if they went to go see Desmond. And if that's true, then there's something to Marsha's theory. Like I, I should not be better at this guy's job than he is. Yeah. So interviewing all of the previous victims took all day. So Dave and Phil are going to go check on Marsha, except she's not home. She's back at Desmond's show. So we head there, and this is when Desmond attempt, attempts to hypnotize the audience. All of it is fake. 
it doesn't work at all. Yeah, none of it worked. None of it worked. We, we were, were doing we were the trying things. to yeah, we were we were playing along, giving the movie a benefit of the doubt. And they failed. Anyways, Dave and Phil bust in, and that's when <laughs> Justine takes Marsha up to the catwalk to kind of like threaten her so that she and Desmond can escape. Desmond is at gunpoint, and this is when Phil tries to talk justine down off the catwalk and he's like but look at you you're so beautiful you have so much to live for you have such a beautiful face and justine's like if you like my face so much you can have it and she pulls off her face it's a face mask yeah and underneath she is mutilated um and she tosses the face down (laughs) towards phil that causes enough of a hubbub that desmond tries to escape and he gets shot. And at that moment, Justine's like, no, Desmond. And she jumps off the catwalk. Even though it's only 20 feet, she dies. Mm-hmm. And um, then Marsha's about to fall. Dave tries to pull her up, whatever. He rescues her, whatever. But the movie's not over yet. Phil has to go out to the audience who have like heard gunshots and yelling and just says like, Hey, everyone, remember, hypnosis as a therapy tool is valid, but on stage, it's dangerous. Do not do any kind of hypnosis. Uh, Talk to your doctor about getting hypnosis. Exactly. Don't do it unless it's under medical supervision, which is hilarious because, as you said, in the context setting, right after this, during the premiere weekend or whatever, fucking... Gil Boyne would pop out and be like, and now it's the amazing Gil Boyne. Yeah, doing hypnosis between shows. Also, it's hilarious because Phil looks right at the camera when he's doing this and is like, don't get hypnotized by someone who's not a doctor, not even in a movie theater. Like he specifically says that. Also, also, like theoretically, the movie was trying to hypnotize you during the movie just now. Yeah, but he's warning. He's finger wagging. It's very funny. So that's the end. That's the movie. So here's okay. Oh my god, Dave. Where do you start? Oh my god. Are we starting with Dave? Let's just start with Dave. You're so bad at your job. How did you get to be a detective? I don't know where this is set. It's Venice, California. You said that, right? So yeah, I have to assume that just like you know, white guy failing up, like like stuff here. Everything that I know about being a police detective does come from reading David Simon books. And I mean, that's fair. For me, in this context, it comes from Ellie Noir. Yeah. But like, <laughs> it's like, it's like this guy gets his case handed to him on a silver fucking platter. It's like, okay, I've got 11 ladies who all mutilated themselves while clearly not in their right frame of mind right? Like they thought they were doing something else and they don't have any memory of anything. Then I go out to a hypnotist with a friend of mine. She gets hypnotized at the show. Then she mutilates herself and she doesn't remember why she did it. She doesn't remember, you know, she thought she was just washing her face. There's sulfuric acid in the house. That wasn't like, there before. Yeah. How did this get here? <sighs> so then it's like at that point, like it's like, oh, huh. Well, even though I don't believe in hypnotism, like I'm a police detective and my job is to run down every lead. And like she went and saw a hypnotist, a person who ostensibly could have hypnotized her to do this. And that would match what happened to everyone else. At that point, I immediately I would have been interviewing everyone being like, hey, did you go to see Desmond? And if 
they you know and asking Dodie and when Dodie goes no I would know something is weird going on because I was there with her at the show and then I would have found the balloon in the lady's purse or whatever that leads them like I would have been so many steps ahead of this guy and then like yeah without putting your girlfriend at risk right and then the fact that like okay this story overall feels like 25 years out of date Yes. Like if this was a movie from like 1937, like I wouldn't be surprised kind of thing because the whole structure of like, well, gee, I'm the hero, but I'm a fucking moron and I don't fucking have any open mind for anything. And then like you have the lead female character being like, well, gee, I, I just have a woman's intuition kind of hunch. So I'm going to go off and put myself into danger to prove my hunch. It's like, why isn't she a spunky girl reporter? Like, this is like, yeah. I mean, we don't know what Marsha does. No, we don't. The movie doesn't care. So, you know, then they put Marsha in danger. And the whole time he's just like, as if he doesn't remember what... The plan was. What undercover operations are. He's like, I can't believe they're dancing together. And it's like... We, before they figure out that, like, you know, Justine is kind of the one pulling the strings and she's getting Desmond to do this so she can get revenge on pretty people for being pretty or whatever... Um, when they first find out that Justine's involved, when he's like, oh, she was in the apartment, they're like, but what could Justine's role in all of this possibly be? And it's like, he needs a someone to plant the stuff, like the sulfuric acid yeah. and stuff. Like they need someone in the apartment to plant the stuff. Like, like yeah, guys, he's, he's it's given, not hard. He's given every piece of this puzzle on a silver platter and can't put it together. I mean, Okay, so you and I had solved it yeah. 15 minutes in. Yes. Because the movie doesn't try to hide it from you. Fair. Like, it, it shows Dodie going to see Desmond. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very cut and dry. But then the movie also treats it like it is a real mystery. Right. So when the audience already knows the answer, you can still show the heroes figuring out the answer. But you need to kind of speed up the process because otherwise you make the heroes look like morons because the audience is just sitting there being like, yeah, it's the villain. In an example of a story where the audience knows the answer to the mystery, Columbo. Yeah. So here's the thing about Columbo. Columbo's not actually trying to solve the mystery either. When you watch Columbo, it's pretty obvious that like Columbo kind of knows who did it really early on. If he doesn't immediately suspect, he does after like the first few scenes. And what he's doing is he's trying to find the evidence to prove his theory or like get the bad guy to like slip up and tell him something to prove his theory. But he's not actually like, gosh, who did this? Yeah. Um, And like one more thing. Yeah. (laughs) You can have a lot of dramatic irony. Yes. In the context of like a film or a TV show or whatever, when you know the answer and you're like, oh, well, he get the guy. Yeah. And it there's none of that in here. The longest bit of like investigative work that we don't really need to see because we already know the answer that could have been like skipped over. I understand why it's here. It's the only part of the movie that has any horror element, which is going to see all the previous victims. Because basically the horror element in this movie is the disfigurement on the women and the like makeup effects on the various disfigured women, which um, are okay. This is why I was also like, is this just a bad horror movie? Mm. Because yeah, the special effects, like the makeup for the most part, it looks like oatmeal and plaster on women's faces. Sure. It's a little like paper mache. It's a little like 
really easy kind of like yeah very simple very not good the best one is probably the woman who is blinded Mm. um and i suppose Dodie when she's wrapped up um i think that's pretty effective but the horror is looking at these people like yeah didn't we cover something like that in freaks back in like what like 30 years ago now like I feel like horror has advanced so much more than just being like, oh, no, look at these poor women. That's why I think this isn't horror. Yeah. Right. Like, it's why I think this is like, you know, a essentially like a a cop thriller kind of mystery movie ish. And like why I use the word pot boiler, because like these are horrific scenes, but like it's really like just using shock. Yeah. Gross out stuff for for like shock value. And it's only really shocking if you're not in a horror movie if you if you get what i mean i can see what you mean um especially because like the movie also has like nothing to say or show when justine shows off her face like it's not any worse yeah then i mean like i feel like the effects are worse but like it it's not any like more horrific than the other women the movie it's not about this topic it's just a motivation right it's like oh this is why justine's doing this right that's why like to me if you cut out like the three or four complete desmond performances that we get in this movie to pad out time and you kind of maybe soft pedaled the um mutilated faces because i don't know if you could really show that on tv in 1960 and not get phone calls from people upset about their kids getting nightmares if you kind of soft pedaled that and cut out the flab like this feels like you know like a, a csi episode or something you know what i mean like a cop drama show of from 1960 and it's like oh we're going after the hypnotist and like whatever and you know it doesn't matter we don't have anything to say about the topic yeah. of like women's beauty and the way that like women feel pressured to be beautiful all the time and and how that can like really you know drive someone to extremes it's just like oh and that was her motivation yeah the movie doesn't do this and this is also like a gross thing to do but you could go the route of like oh no foreigners are going to take your girl with Desmond being so conspicuously not american Sure. Yeah. I mean, the movie doesn't do that. It doesn't come up. Exactly. It doesn't um, do it. Um, and it would be gross if it did. But we have seen that route taken in horror movies. Sure, sure, sure. So here's the thing. Bad movie, but like not, it's not bad enough to be fun. Yeah. So I, it's, we found ourselves just like yelling at the TV, it's yelling just, at Dave. Yeah. It's just boring and predictable, right? It's a very like connect the dots kind of script which i mean you know this guy woodfield had never written a script before this so the fact that it's just kind of like pieces of story that you've seen in other places and he also wasn't like taking it seriously and was just kind of like let's put out some some crap like you know so i'm not surprised that it's kind of formulaic right but yeah man like davis is so dumb and he's also just like not a pleasant person to be no, around. No, he's he's a misogynist in like that casual 1960 misogynist way. Um you know that thing in modern TV shows where the lead character is an asshole but you have to forgive him for it because he's a genius? Yeah. It's like that, but he's not a genius. He's a moron. <laughs> so if House was an idiot doctor. Right. Yeah, like exactly. Like if, if someone came into House and was like coughing and sneezing everywhere and like couldn't breathe and Dr. House was like, gosh, I have no idea how we're going to figure out what this is. And then like one of the other like assistants was like, do you want to 
temperature. And I was yeah. just like, oh, wow. Yeah. What an idea. Like, <laughs> yeah, like it's so bad. He's so dumb. Um, I regret watching this. So I know that there's a couple movies coming up uh-huh. that deal with like, oh, no, woman without a face. That's a movie that's coming up. Uh, do Have you seen the eyes without a face or whatever? Yeah. Do you see anything that would tie this to that to at least give some kind of credit? Like uh, no. Something to this movie? No, not at all. Okay. Um, I'll tell you why in a little bit. But like other than just the sort of, you know, very basic connection of disfigured women, which like disfigurement as like a horror trope, like, you know, if we expand it to include men, like goes back. It goes back to Phantom, Phantom of, of the, the Opera. Opera. Yeah, exactly. And so this movie's not doing anything with it to make it horrific, really. Yeah. It's, it's, it's shock scares, right? It's like, oh, wow, did you catch a glimpse of the scary face? But like, you know, there's a jump scare with a cat and that's like about it. Yeah. Um, no, I, I regret watching this. I regret make having this be an episode. Oh, don't like, say that. <laughs> no, I'm glad we watched it because at least then we got to yell at Dave. Yeah. You know, it can be cathartic to yell at a movie screen. Yeah. And I think also it uh, was kind of silly to try to be hypnotized by a movie from 1960 that's fair that's fair yeah yeah man it's just this movie's very boring and predictable it's fine for like the level of effort i know people didn't put into it you know what i mean like like sure but i kind of i think i would have been into the white line on the screen hypnotizing me into thinking i'd seen the greatest movie i'd ever seen sure the movie doesn't even try to hypnotize you into thinking it's good, which was like the whole the whole point point of the movie. I do just want to say, in the context setting, you said that like the guy who wrote this was a photographer, mm-hmm. and so some shots in this movie kind of break the traditional rules of filmmaking because he's thinking about it as a photographer. There were some neat shots. Yeah. So that, you know, it was neat, but obviously there's no like leading towards a larger artistic purpose, sure. which I... I I include here only just to differentiate it from what Orson Welles did in Citizen Kane, (laughs) you know? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's like when the lady burns her hair on the stove, it's like a shot from the point of view of the stove element. Um, We get like shots from the POV of the sink when she washes her face in the sulfuric acid. Yeah. Like it's not poorly shot. Um, It's not, like really at the end of the day poorly made it's just like very boring and predictable it, yeah. it's it's it should have been an episode of some tv show well folks if you haven't already guessed we will not be ranking this movie nah. but if you do want to see the list and see what has ranked you can head to screamscenepodcast.com and you can find the full list of episodes there Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review or telling a friend about the show, whether that's online or in person. Word of mouth helps us grow our audience. You can also help the show out by heading over to our Patreon, where you can help support everything that we do here at Castle Scream Scene. You can join up for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content. Patrons at all levels get to vote in our polls for horror-adjacent bonus episodes. So if you 
like the show, want to help us out, want to support what we do, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. So Ben, next week is going to be one of our horror adjacent episodes. It's going to be Zombies on Broadway. Yes. But the poll for June hasn't come out yet. Yes. Do you want to tell us what we're going to be watching for horror adjacent for June? Uh, tune in to our Zombies on Broadway episode where I will have a special announcement about our horror adjacent bonus episode for June. Beautiful. So that's what we're doing next week. What is our next uh, regular horror episode? So this is why I know that this movie has no influence on Eyes Without a Face, because our next regular episode is Eyes Without a Face. Yeah, there would be no time. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I'm do you super think excited like... about it, though. <laughs> Eyes Without a Face is from France? Correct. So it's not even a case of, like, there was something in the water. No, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's straight up just, like, no relation. But I'm going to be really excited to see, like a good horror movie that's like in the Criterion collection and that like influenced Guillermo del Toro and like it's just gonna be really nice to see a good movie Sarah absolutely well we will see you then creatures of the night bye bye bye